Isaiah 53, the prophet writes, Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness, and when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. And yet we esteemed him stricken, even smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned, every single one of us, to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people he was stricken. And they made his grave with the wicked. But with the wit rich at his death. Because he had done no violence. Nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin. He shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death. And he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Once there was a fire and brimstone preacher who visited a local church. This man was passionate in his verbiage, and he was demonstrative in his style. He pranced around the platform, returning to the podium just in time to pound his fist down one more time. But one Sunday, he had a problem with the lapel mic that he was wearing. This leash-like cord was restricting his movements. And so throughout his sermon, the preacher, he just kept pulling and tugging and dodging and dancing around that cord. Constantly sort of adjusting the microphone cord, sort of rearranging himself. It was obvious that it bothered him. Well, finally, toward the end of his sermon, he gathered up as much slack in the cord as he could... He wanted to make a dramatic lunge at the congregation, arms waving, fingers pointing. He screeched out to everyone, repent! That's when one little boy, he leaned over and he whispered to his father. He said, Dad, 
Will he hurt us if he gets loose? Well, trust me, growing up in southern churches, I've witnessed more than a few preachers who caused me to think, man, if that guy gets loose, he's going to hurt somebody. Fiery, angry, demonstrative preachers give you the impression that they're mad at the world. I mean, their voice and their cadence and their mannerisms come across at least semi-violent. And as a kid, I would assume that that must be God's attitude. I feared God, but for all the wrong reasons. I figured that if God got loose, He might just hurt someone. You know, if you've ever had that notion about God, you need to study Isaiah chapter 53. For in this chapter, God gets loose, all right. He leaves the halls of heaven. He gets loose on earth. And yes, the scene turns bloody and it turns violent. In fact, verse 10 is the key verse in this chapter. It tells us, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise. God inflicted a bruise. God must have used his belt. God took off his gloves. He threw a punch. Don't tell defects. But God has been spanking. It caused a bruise. But here's the question. Who did he bruise? Not you. Certainly not me. God knows we deserve a good whipping. But it was never God's intention to lay a hand on any of us. This is so shocking, friends. This is so stunning. No matter how many times I read it, I am always astonished. When God's Son got loose on earth, God didn't move to bruise the sinner. No, it pleased the Father in heaven. To bruise his only son. It's beyond our wildest imagination. But God bruised the Savior. Not the sinner. In fact, that's not the only surprise we find here in Isaiah chapter 53. It's a chapter full of surprises. It tells me when the Savior appeared. It actually depicts his countenance. It describes his reception. And then it portrays his demeanor. In fact, it shows the Savior's calm in the midst of the storm. It reveals the circumstances surrounding His death, His eventual resurrection. It even exposes His scars. Oh, those scars. The bruises and the stripes and the wounds. Chapter 53's biggest surprise is its explanation of those scars. We find that when God got loose on earth, rather than hurt us... He hurt His only Son. Why? So that we could be pardoned and cured and comforted for all to eternity. You know, this chapter proves for all time that God is not angry with you. He's not mad at us. God doesn't want to harm or judge or condemn us to hell. Hey, God is literally dying to be our friend. And if you let Him, He'll shoulder your burden. He'll obtain for you the help you need. Tonight I want to share with you a few of the surprises that we find here in Isaiah chapter 53. First, I want you to notice verse 2. We're told, For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. 
Jesus came to earth in a dry, arid, barren season of history. He was a tender plant who came up from dry ground. If you'd been around at the time, of course, the time of history, you, you might have noticed, or you might not have noticed, the dryness of the ground. In fact, the historians call it a golden age, really. Rome was dominating the world politically. Athens had cast its long shadow of culture, of Greek culture. Jerusalem was the capital of religion. Secular historians couldn't remember a better time, a more glorious age. The first century was a golden age. But spiritually speaking, Isaiah predicted that the landscape would be dusty and barren and bleak and infertile. You see, until John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, there had not been a prophetic utterance from heaven for 400 years. Heaven had been silent for over four centuries. That's how barren it was. Phariseeism and hypocrisy had a vice grip on Israel in the first century. Prejudice made the Jews ineffective at reaching their neighbors. The Jewish preoccupation was political liberation, not spiritual growth. Rather than worship God, the Jews used God to promote their own agenda. Yes, dry, dusty, unplowed hearts were what awaited Jesus. Why didn't God turn Jesus loose on earth at a more opportune time? In the glory days of the Hebrew prophets or during the reign of King David or maybe on the heels of Moses in the Exodus. God doesn't tell us why. All we know that spiritually speaking, God sent Jesus into the world at low tide. The most beautiful and fruitful flower the world had ever seen sprung up out of dry ground, out of the ugliest, the most desolate desert. Christianity rose from obscurity, from underdog status to change the world. Notice Isaiah calls Jesus a tender plant. He was alive and he was eager and he was growing. He loved life. He loved people. Surprisingly, hope sprung eternal out of the barren ground of a village called Nazareth. Spiritual fruit eventually sprouted from the life and ministry of Jesus. He was a tender plant. But there's another surprise for us here. Isaiah mentions Jesus' physical appearance in the last half of verse 2. He has no form or comeliness. And when we see him... There is no beauty that we should desire Him. Here's another shocker for you. Jesus wasn't six feet tall, blonde hair, blue eyes, and bulging biceps. Leading man looks was not His style. Jesus was not a Matthew McGonaghy persona. If God were coming to earth, you'd think He'd look like a hunk. The Hebrew word translated form, it means a striking profile. The word comeliness means beauty, and according to Isaiah, Jesus had neither. You know, it's funny to see pictures of Jesus where he looks like a red-headed Irishman. Jesus was Jewish, and I'm sure he had Jewish features. I have a book in my library. It's called the Archco Volume. It's a collection of old documents that were tucked away in the back recesses of the Vatican where they were found. Oh, its content is suspect. But in it, there is a supposed physical description of our Lord Jesus. I'm going to read it to you. 
He is the picture of his mother. Only he has not her smooth round face. He is tall and his shoulders are a little drooped. His visage is thin and of a swarthy complexion or dark and dusky. His eyes are large and soft blue and rather dull and heavy. The lashes are long and his eyebrows very large. His nose is that of a Jew. In fact, he reminds me of an old-fashioned Jew in every sense of the word. Now, we have no idea if the description is authentic, but it squares nicely now with Isaiah's observation that he has no form or comeliness that we should desire him. I think this is why Jesus could blend in and slip through the crowd. This is why Judas had to identify Jesus when he betrayed him with a kiss. You see, Jesus had no physical features that set him apart. God's son looked like an ordinary Joe. It seems Jesus came to win the world, not some beauty contest. If you were the type of person who measured a man by his appearance, you probably would have ignored the Son of God. He wasn't dashing or attractive or a heartthrob. In fact, when people flocked to Jesus, it wasn't because of his good looks. It was because of his goodness. Jesus wasn't just another pretty face. He grabbed our attention not with show but with substance. It was the force of his character and kindness. It was his virtue and his purity. It was his fierce devotion to truth, yet his incredible displays of love. This is what drew people to Jesus. And this is what still draws people to Jesus. If you were walking down the streets of Jerusalem and you bumped into Jesus, you would have been surprised by the nondescript appearance. You would say, is this God's son? You see, our Lord Jesus didn't provoke a second glance. His appeal was deeper. Somehow Jesus touched a part within us that lies dormant. Jesus awakened a spiritual hunger. And He still does. Notice verse 3, it also surprises us. We're told He is despised and rejected by men. What? God visited us and He was rejected? John 1 verse 11 says it best. He came to His own and His own did not receive Him. Jesus was God and He backed it up with prophetic and miraculous proof. Yet the Jews recoiled at His claims because He didn't look the part. The Greek gods, remember, they were colossal and muscular and beautiful. But Jesus looked common even for a mortal. Jesus claimed to be God. But he was despised by his fellow Jews. They saw his appearance and then his agenda as the antithesis of what anyone would expect from God. You see, at the time, the Jews were in a political struggle with Rome. They longed for freedom and political independence. They were actually seeking military intervention. What surprised them was that Jesus could care less about what they wanted. Jesus cared instead about their heart. Does it ever bother you that sometimes Jesus could care less about the issues that preoccupy you? <laughs> You're struggling to get rich. Man, you want to climb the ladder of success. You're just trying to get a date. While Jesus, he stays focused on peace in your heart. 
and love for your neighbor and the responsibilities you have to your family. Jesus cares about your integrity. He cares about truth. On the one hand, it surprises me to read, Jesus was despised and rejected by, the, by men. But then I remember my own heart and far, how far I'm capable of straying from God's will. And then it really doesn't surprise me much at all. God's Son paid the world a visit. And we were so out of sync with His will that we despised and rejected Him. That's surprising. Well, here's another surprise. Look at Jesus' demeanor. There's a tear in His eye. There's a grimace on His face. We're told He's a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. This is shocking to me. Jesus is God and God is the pure essence of joy. When He made the world, He said that it was all good. He said that it was very good. He was happy and satisfied and pleased with His creation. Yet when He re-entered His original domain in the person of Jesus, He saw so many things that were now not good that He weeped at the damage that sin had done. Understand, Jesus lived on this planet in its fallen state with the clear knowledge of how God meant for life to be from the beginning. Everywhere Jesus turned, He saw the contrast between what is and what should be. And it caused an unrelenting sorrow to dwell in His heart. This is why Jesus wept at the tomb of Lazarus. And this is why in the Garden of Gethsemane, He shed tears, the consistency of great drops of blood, the thickness of blood. And this is why He stood on the Mount of Olives over Jerusalem and He weeped over the stubbornness of Israel. In Matthew 23, through tears, Jesus cried out, How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. To me, it's surprising indeed that the Lord of life, that the Prince of Peace, that the King of Joy was called a man of sorrows. Isaiah also surprises us with certain details of Jesus' death. Remember now, Isaiah is writing prophecy. He occupies a place on the timeline about 700 years prior to Jesus. And yet he looks ahead to Calvary's cross. Notice in verse 12 he writes, Jesus will be numbered with the transgressors. He sees ahead that one day on Mount Calvary, Jesus will be hanging on a cross between two thieves. Reminds me of the old preacher on his deathbed. He called the nurse to his side. He said, nurse, please go get my doctor and my lawyer so I can die in peace. She thought that was a strange request. Why would having your doctor and your lawyer by your side enable you to die in peace? But she complied. She called the men. They gave him to the hospital. When they entered the room, the preacher positioned them, one on one side of his bed, one on the other side of his bed. Then he turned and he said to the nurse, Now I can die like my Lord Jesus between two thieves. <laughs> Isaiah looked ahead and he saw Jesus numbered among the transgressors. How surprising is that? And then notice too, Isaiah surprises us with Jesus' reaction to the accusations against him in his trial before Pilate. We're told in verse 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. 
He was led as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. My, he endured this interrogation without becoming defensive. Without resorting to any kind of self-preservation. He truly was offering himself up a sacrifice. Matthew tells us that even Pilate marveled greatly at the poise and the composure shown by Jesus. This man was obviously marching to a different drummer. Deep inside, Jesus knew the cross was the will of God. The Roman tribunal was simply a tool in the hands of providence. Verse 9 reveals another surprising revelation. We're told that Jesus was laid in a rich man's grave. And the gospel affirms the prophecy. There was a rich man, a rich Jew who believed in Jesus. His name was Joseph of Arimathea. He volunteered his own tomb for the burial of the body. Legend has it when Joseph approached the Roman governor with this desire to bury Jesus in his own tomb, Pilate questioned him. He said, Joseph, why would you want to give up your new tomb, an expensive tomb, to a common criminal? Joseph answered, ah, it's no big deal. He's only going to need it for the weekend. And he was right. Surprisingly, Isaiah even predicts Jesus' resurrection. We're told in verse 10, When you make his soul, that is Jesus' soul, an offering for sin, he shall see his seed or his offspring. He shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Jesus' triumph over death indeed prolonged his days. In fact, he lives today. He's as active as ever. He's still at work, healing hearts and saving souls. And we now have become His offspring. We've been born again by His blood, by His new birth. And one day, He'll return to earth to fulfill all God's good pleasure. Which brings us to Isaiah 53's most surprising revelation. Those scars. The Savior's incredible scars. On display in Rome at St. Peter's Basilica is Michelangelo's masterpiece, the Piata. The famous sculpture, it depicts Mary holding in her arms the body of her crucified son. This sculpture is so lifelike. When you see it, you're amazed that so much passion, so much tenderness could be captured in a chunk of cold stone. Once there was a group standing in front of this world-famous sculpture when a little girl whispered to her mother and said, What in the world have they done to Jesus? The mom, she reached down and she put her finger over her lips and she summoned her little child to be quiet. But the girl was too wrapped up in what she was seeing. She repeated her question, this time with more force. What in the world have they done to Jesus? And when I read Isaiah 53, I ask the very same question. How could they have been so cruel? How could they have been so calloused? What were they thinking when they hammered those spikes through his flesh and when they raked the scourge across his back? What kind of madness overcame them? What in the world have they done to Jesus? Here's a shocker for you. In verse 5, Isaiah pens an awful, heartbreaking description. He writes, He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon Him. And by His stripes we are healed. 
Here are the Hebrew words. They, they paint a more vivid picture for us. They show us the force of our text. Wounded. You know what that word means in the original language? It means pierced or perforated. Jesus' body was punctured in at least seven places. His two hands, his feet, his brow, his back, his side, the spear that went through his side. The term bruised, this is another awful term. It can be translated beaten to pieces, mauled, crushed. Recall how the Romans, they struck Jesus' face with their open hands, relentlessly. They battered, they bruised him. The chastisement he refers to here referred to the formal beating that he endured. He was pummeled with that leather whip, nine thongs, with little pieces of jagged metal or ivory dug into his skin with each strike. The custom was 39 lashes. Jesus' torso looked like the scraps of a leftover turkey after Thanksgiving dinner, after the carver had done his job. Let me show you another surprise. Turn back to... Chapter 52, verse 14, if you will. Verse 14 of the previous chapter. There Isaiah says something amazing. His visage was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. There are a couple of Old Testament scholars, a couple of dead Germans, Kyle and Delich. They translate this verse as follows. So disfigured, his appearance was not human, and his form not like that of the children of men. I think they capture the essence of it. Apparently, the face and the body of Jesus was so butchered, he no longer resembled a human being. Isaiah 50 verse 6 provides us surprising details of the crucifixion we don't even have in the Gospels. Jesus is quoted by Isaiah as saying, I gave my back to those who struck me and my cheeks to those who plucked out my beard. I did not hide my face from shame and split spitting. They plucked out his beard, mind you. They spit in his face. We don't even read that in the Gospels. The angry Jews and their Roman executioners, they didn't just kill Jesus. They tried to maim and torture him in the process. The goal was not just to put him to death. It was to inflict as much pain as possible in the process. Jesus looked like a heavyweight boxer who had just gone 15 rounds and lost. Or a burn victim. Or a body mangled in an airplane crash. His face was a massive whelp. Jesus was bloodied and swollen and beaten. Think about pulling your beard out. Just yanking it out of your skin. If there had been a funeral, there's no doubt in my mind, it would have been closed casket. No one could have bared to look. Perhaps this was the reason Mary failed to recognize Jesus after He rose from the dead. We know that after His resurrection, Jesus bore the scars of His crucifixion in His hands and in His feet and in His side. He showed those scars to Thomas. So why wouldn't His face also bear those scars? Here's a surprise, yet future. One day, when you see Jesus for the very first time, you might just be in for shock. In Revelation 5, John was transported to heaven. He looked for the Redeemer who would save the world. He was told, the Lion of the tribe of Judah has prevailed. 
But when John turned to see a lion, instead, he saw a lamb as though it had been slain. Apparently, even in heaven today, Jesus appears as a sacrificed lamb. I believe when we look into the face of Jesus, we'll see those terrible scars. We'll be in for a surprise. But we will know instantly when we see them just how much He endured for us. We'll never doubt His love for us again. Never. Charles Spurgeon describes the emotion. Stand at the foot of the cross, he writes, and count the purple drops by which you have been cleansed. See the thorn crown. Mark His scourged shoulders still gushing within crimson reels. And if you do not lie prostrate on the ground before that cross, man, you have never seen it. Here's a riddle. What's the only man-made thing in heaven? And the answer, the scars that Jesus bears on His body. And oh, how we should love and cherish those precious scars. Well, there's one more surprise in this chapter. And it's the most shocking of them all. Look again at verse 5. He was wounded, yes. He was bruised, yes. But why? It was for our transgressions. It was for our iniquities. It wasn't the Romans or the Jews who nailed Jesus to the cross. He bore in His body my sin and your sin. Reminds me of the little boy who went to church with his dad on Easter. His father really wanted to teach his son the significance of this special day. The dad said to his son, he said, Jesus died because people nailed him to a cross. That little boy, his eyes got big and wide, wide as saucers. He looked over the congregation and he said to his dad, you mean these people? And the right answer would have been, yeah, these people. They're the ones who did it. They're the ones who nailed Him to the cross. Verse 4, He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Verse 6, And we like sheep have, and we all like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to His own way. And the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. Here's the heart of this surprising chapter. Isaiah 53 tells us that Jesus' death on the cross was substitutionary. He was beaten and tortured and executed not because of something He did. Jesus died in our place. He bore, his, he bore our sin on His shoulders. You see, all your foul-ups, all the stupid things you've done in your life, all your blatant acts of rebellion, all the little sins that go unnoticed by everybody else but God, all of the sins you commit because you're so used to committing them that you don't even recognize them as sin anymore. All of that junk, all of your junk and all of my junk, the garbage of the whole world was collected into one can and it was shoved on Jesus' truck. Imagine the frightful moment when that heavy load fell on our Lord's innocent shoulders. 
The sin of the world was thrust on a man who had never known a single sin his whole life. Think about it. The sin of the rapist and the serial killer and the extortionist and the child molester and the suicide bomber and the abortionist. Even your sin and my sin was all gathered up together and thrust onto the crucified Christ. We will never grasp the shock that was to his system and the pain that caused him. We will never grasp it. But this is why it's foolish for you or me or any of us to think that we can be good enough to get to heaven. Hey, if you could be, then Jesus died in vain. Do you think for a second that God would have allowed His only Son to suffer such a hideous death unless it was absolutely necessary? It reminds me of the good old boy who spent his whole life on the run from God. He just spent his life ignoring Jesus. Why get cumbered down with that kind of stuff? He figured since he had never robbed a bank or never murdered anybody, he really wouldn't be sent to hell. He was sure God would make an exception for him. One night, though, he had a dream. He was standing in line there at the gates of heaven. He was right behind Mother Teresa. Here was a woman who had sacrificed all the world's comforts to minister selflessly to the poorest of the poor on the streets of Calcutta. And yet his heart sank when he heard God say, Sorry, Teresa, but I was really expecting a lot more out of you. In other words... Not even Mother Teresa of Calcutta can measure up to God's standards. Notice again verse 6. All, all we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. Every mother's child is guilty before God. Every one of you. And this is why we all desperately need Jesus. Well, here's another surprise. You know, we all know that sin carries a serious penalty. I think that's why we punish ourselves so. You know, folks involve themselves in all kinds of destructive patterns of behavior because they don't think they deserve the life that God offers them. They don't reach out for God's help because they feel unworthy of His love. In fact, some of you have been beating yourself up quite regularly for years. You're haunted by feelings of inadequacy. Understand, you can punish yourself over and over and over again, but you'll never make those feelings of guilt go away. Never. Please, listen again to Isaiah. The answer is found in these surprising words. By His stripes, we're healed. The chastisement for our peace was upon Him. Jesus bore in His body the punishment for all of the hideous, slimy, grimy, dirty things you've ever done. And now that you know that, for you to punish yourself any longer is to belittle or doubt the work of Jesus Christ. It's time, my friend, for you to lay aside your guilt. It's time for you to lay the burden down and trust once and for all in the pardon of Jesus Christ. In his classic book, Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan, he writes of the liberating moment in every Christian's life. I saw that just as Christian came up to the cross, 
his burden loosed from his shoulders, fell off his back and landed in the grave. Then was Christian glad and lightsome and said with a merry heart, He has given me rest by his sorrow and life by his death. I felt lightsome when I came to Christ. I don't know really what lightsome means, but it sounds good, doesn't it? Lightsome. He was glad and lightsome when he finally let the burden roll off his shoulders. And when he gave it to God, when he knew he was forgiven, finally and forever. Do you want to feel lightsome tonight? Do you want to feel glad and lightsome? The great church father Jerome, he lived in Bethlehem solely because it was the birthplace of Jesus. He labored daily to make himself worthy of God's favor. He did all kinds of chores and, and good works for God. One night, though, he had a dream where Jesus paid him a visit. Jerome collected all of his money and he offered it to Jesus as a gift. But the Lord told him, I don't want your money. Jerome then rounded up all his possessions and he offered them to Jesus. But Jesus replied, I don't want your possessions. Finally, Jerome, in desperation, he turned to Jesus and he asked him, Well, Lord, what can I give you? What do you want? And Jesus replied, Give me your sin. That's what I came for. I came to take away your sin. Give me your sin. And this is what Jesus wants from you tonight. In your heart of hearts, if you'll come to the cross right now and behold the man suffering there for you, if you'll roll your burden, whatever it is, no matter how heavy it might be, over onto his shoulders and believe that he has paid the price, a change will occur in you. You'll be different. You'll walk out of this room tonight glad and lightsome. Turn your sin over to Jesus once and for all, and you'll be forgiven. You'll be set free. The moment you trust in His stripes, those surprising scars, the healing will begin. I'm so sure of God's promise. I'm so sure that if you take Jesus at His word tonight, if you believe in His pardon, your cleansing and your cure is the one thing that won't be a surprise. It'll happen. It'll happen tonight. In Jesus' name. Father, thank you for your words tonight, for your love for us. Lord, we pray that as we come now to the Lord's table to remember the body and the blood that has been sacrificed for us, I pray that we would come with a humble heart a grateful heart, a repentant heart. I pray, Lord, that we would lay aside our pride and our cares. Lord, that if there's blatant sin in our life, I pray that we would confess it before we come. Lord, I pray that we would come appreciating the work that you've done for us. And not just appreciating, Lord, I pray that we would come tonight expecting the healing to continue, the forgiveness to be felt, the burden to roll away. 
I pray that we would come expecting tonight your gladness. Your deliverance. As we come and as we partake under the shadow of the cross. I pray that you will work in our hearts. And in our families. And in our marriages. In our workspaces, in our living spaces. I pray that you'll begin to work change. Lord, I pray that for some of us who've stalled out, who've hit a rut, I pray that tonight you'll jumpstart us. You'll get us going again. We love you, Lord. We look forward to these next few moments as we come and partake of communion. We ask that you reveal yourself to us tonight in a special and wonderful way. In Jesus' name.